This week, uh, it's on acceptance. Um, I gotta apologize because um, I chose this months ago and I didn't realize what was gonna be taking place in society at this time. I didn't realize the tension that was going to exist in our place, in our community this time. And there is always a tension when you're preaching uh, between being pastoral and being prophetic. And you have to balance those two tensions out all the time because I know people come to church and they are exhausted. Uh, they haven't had time to study the Word of God during the week. They haven't had time to go to a life group and be replenished and, and build inside community. And they come exhausted. In fact, their, their fuel tanks, if you imagine, their reserve tanks are empty. So they're coming dry as it could be. And then there are other people who are just really on fire. They've been fully connected. They've got time and space in their life, or they've made time and space in their life, and they're studying. They've done the daily walk, and they're all prepped, and they know this passage. In fact, they know things in the Greek and Hebrew that I haven't even seen myself. And they're just like, give it to me. Just lay it down really, really hard, and just take us in that place. And so this tension between being pastoral and prophetic is always very difficult, especially with a message on acceptance. So yesterday, I came by this quote, um, and it said this by Nelson Mandela. Fools multiply when wise men are silent. Fools multiply when wise men are silent. And I wrestled through that. I thought about that for quite a while. I thought, my goodness, there's so much stuff that happens in church, so much stuff that happens in our community, so much stuff that happens in our society that's just not acceptable and very tense and divisive all the way through there. And I'm going to address some of these much more clearly, I think, in the final message on affiliation. So in two weeks' time, when we hit that final message on affiliation, I'm going to talk quite frankly about what affiliation really means and what are the consequences and implications of affiliation and how we relate to each other when we choose our affiliations. But this week has been intense. It's been intense in the news, been intense in the world around us. I don't know if you know this, but I was talking to Mark, uh, Rabbi Mark, who, who's down in Boulder, and uh, he was telling me that uh, there are 30 synagogues that have been threatened this week with bomb threats. His was one of them. Um, where just a community has decided that that's what they're going to do. And they called, and it wasn't like a recording of a voice. It was actually real people calling up, talking to them, saying, I'm going to bomb your synagogue and destroy your place. That is unacceptable. You may have seen in the news reported this week as well about how uh, a girl took her life, a seventh grader, a seventh grader took her life live on Facebook because she doesn't feel accepted doesn't belong and doesn't belong inside that community inside there. For Josh's birthday last weekend, one of the things that we did, we went and saw the movie Hidden Figures. Anybody seen that? Hidden Figures? Oh man, I wept through that. I was just, I was moved through that story. It's a story of NASA and all the mathematical equations to be able to bring, you know, the men back from space and all this incredible stuff and, and the racial and sexist tensions that existed in society all the way through and, and the fight and the struggle and there were just powerful scenes of reconciliation and powerful scenes of acceptance taking place inside there. You just felt overwhelmed, especially at the credits at the end when you saw what has happened as a result of these great things inside there. And then two days ago, I saw that somebody posted on Facebook um, their comment about things that are taking place today in politics. And they said, heaven has walls. Heaven has walls. 
And this was their attempt to be able to kind of bring in some perspective on what they believe the walls mean today that have been planned to be built. These are all interesting statements that have been placed out there, and it really implies that there is acceptance for some and acceptance not for others, and acceptance is a very difficult thing. And that's the very first question I have for you. It's the very first question inside here. Why is acceptance so difficult? Why is it so difficult to accept something? Why is it so difficult to live a life of acceptance? And the tension is, is that there are three words that we often get confused when we think of acceptance. We think that uh, it could be uh, that we actually are condemning, it could be that we are conforming, or it could be that we are condoning. And sometimes when we think that we accept something, we feel that we've let our standards go down. So we all create standards, every single one of us. I mean, I have standards when I'm driving. I, I look around and I think to myself, you need to learn to drive. You really do. I, I really do. I just, I wish you would actually indicate. I wish that you would like flash your lights towards me to let me know that the officers have laid a trap up ahead. I mean, these are just very simple etiquette things that you should do. And when you're driving, and you're kind of connected to that. So we, we feel that we have standards, and we feel that these standards may be diminished by accepting people. And so we don't understand how to actually restrain through that. We feel that if we've accepted something, maybe we've given up, you know? And if we accept something, maybe it's because you don't know how to respond to the reality of that. I don't know if you've ever played this game, and I play this game a lot as a fam and my family plays this game. It's called the Would You Rather. You ever play that game? As a family, it gets really out of control. Uh, it gets to places that are very dark. Uh, they're dangerous. But I'm going to give you some, some very safe ones. These are just two classic ones, you know, and you can see where the, how you feel about this. Would you rather have a head the size of a watermelon, not like a little baby melon, a watermelon, or a tennis ball? Right? And you're like, I know, some of you are thinking tennis ball. I know, I know. Peewee brain, just you know, tennis ball or watermelon. So you have to wrestle through that. Would you rather live in a house that is a really the best house but in the worst neighborhood? Or would you like to live in the worst house in the best neighborhood? I know. Don't, don't answer because I don't want to know. Um, <laughs> These are tensions all the time. Let me give you some that you could answer now, right? And so would you rather help someone or be helped? How many of you would rather be helped? How many would rather help someone? Yeah, I know. How many would rather love someone or be loved? How many would rather lo be loved? Yep, yep, talk to your spouse, all right? And then uh, how many would rather love someone? Yeah, I know. How many of you would rather be saved or save someone? How many of you would rather be saved? All right, and how many of you would rather save somebody else? Yeah, I know, you people. How many of you would rather be accepted or accept someone? How many of you would be, be accepted? Yeah, and then how many of you would rather just accept somebody else? Such generous people. Yeah, yeah, I know. It feels nice to do something for someone else who needs it. It doesn't feel so cool to accept something when you need it. And we do the same with God all the time. We say we want to be saved. We like the idea of being saved, but to actually admit that we need salvation and that only God can do that is overwhelming to us. So this game of Would You Rather is really about control. It's really about trying to, to delve in there. How much control and freedom can you have if the options were really horrible, if they were just entirely opposite inside there? And these are always tense all the time inside there. 
I remember once, uh, years ago, when I was a child, there was a family in, my, in our church that, that didn't have any food. They ran out of food, they lost a job, but things were going really bad. And a, a group of the members in the church got together, made these huge care packages, right? Big baskets of food, went to the house, rang the doorbell, and then offered this family all this food to take care of them for the next week at least, or the next month, it was a lot of food. And they refused, I mean refused, they said no. We're perfectly fine. We're doing okay. Because their pride and their belief that they can take care of themselves was just so strong, they wouldn't do that. What was interesting is that those members didn't feel that it was safe just to leave it at the door and just leave, right? They had to ring the bell, let somebody know that they're helping them. And so the tension all the time takes place inside those two places, inside there that you want to be able to help and you want to be able to have acceptance, you want independence, but it's just a struggle all the time. And I think Satan, what he does really, really well, is he tries to sell us a model of independence that is without God, without community, without anybody else. It's why there's tensions all the time in our life, because we have to admit that we need God. We have to admit that we need each other, that we are better people to be loved and to love. Absolutely. We are better people to accept a gift and to accept others. We're better people if we actually have the courage to have a little bit of humility inside there. Let's turn to the text in John chapter 6, because this is a great passage inside it. John chapter 6, verse 22. In your pew Bibles, uh, it's page 987, so you can grab that out. Remember with those Bibles, you can mark them, you can highlight them, take them with you, uh, see how you feel, share them with somebody else, and then put them back as well, or take them with you. But page 987, John chapter 6, verse 22. And this was the passage that I wanted you to read. We're going through the seven I am statements of Jesus where he declares with different metaphors who he is. And each time he's trying to pull some different aspect about his divinity, about his relationship with us, about his connection with us, and how we can respond to that. So today we're looking, being committed to acceptance, this particular passage where he describes it, he enters this way. On John chapter 6, verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away. Other boats from Tiberias came near and place where they had eaten the bread off the Lord had given thanks. So they were just like, where is Jesus? I don't understand what's going on here. Something's happened. The disciples are gone. All the other boats are around. What actually happened to Jesus Christ inside it? So you have to go back and read the story before. And I hope you did that during the week. And if you didn't, I want to give you a quick Cliff Notes example or like a summary of it really quickly. And Pastor David alluded to it in the story, which was phenomenal. Emmanuel was telling us how many people. It was like 5,000 Emmanuel was telling us inside there. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And as Pastor David was sharing as well, he uses the bread and the fish from this little boy who's willing to share what he has with them and say, this is actually what I'm willing to do. And Jesus multiplies this, does this incredible miracle. It happens in chapter 5, all the way back there, that they're really excited about this. And then Jesus, he sees this, but then in verse 15, I believe at the end here, verse 15 of chapter 6, it says this, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the reason not to have fellowship lunch. If you provide food, people want to make you king. Is that right, Lana? I think it's true. It's true. I, I don't see her here. But it's true. If you provide lunch, people are like really happy. And in fact, that's what they thought the gospel was. You feed me. You take care of me. You do all of my needs. I'll follow you. Man, I will make you king whether you want to be king or not. Jesus knows this. He realizes that the experiment hasn't gone as well as he planned. 
they feel that the food is actually taken to a different place. He wants to bring them to another space, so he disappears. He actually walks on water. The disciples are in the boat. They see Jesus, and this incredible miracle takes place, and he's on the other side of the lake at Capernaum. Read on in John chapter 6, verse 24 now to 27. It says this, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples themselves, they got into the boats, and they went to Capernaum to seek Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. I love how Jesus just switches it all up with them. He uses the moment, and he teaches them in the moment, right there and then, this is what actually needs to change this idea. And this is not new. It's not, a, it's not even a harsh reply. I know you're thinking to yourself, they were hungry, he fed them. They come across the lake with their boats, and they arrive at Capernaum. You realize this, that Capernaum had approximately 1,700 people living in Capernaum. Now you have 5,000 people, plus their wives and their children. So at least another 10,000 people have hit this little city where only 1,700 people live. Can you imagine the chaos in the city? It'd be like the traffic jam of your entire life. You'd never, you're just like, where do I go? I don't know. Everybody's talking to each other saying, where is this Jesus? And they've all come because he made bread. And he just, I mean, he fed us. And man, that bread was good. Whole Foods couldn't even touch that bread. It was so sweet. It was fantastic. It was the best bread I've ever had. I want that bread for life. I want him to be my king who supplies bread because I don't want to have to go get anymore. And Jesus says, I want to just take this and turn it around. In fact, he reminds them of a story that took place in Mark chapter 8. And I'm, it's page 935 in your Bibles with Mark chapter 8. If you turn with me to Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 21. It's a great story inside there where Jesus is talking to them about it. And he says this, verse 14. So turn with me there. It's a page again, 935, Mark chapter 8, verse 11. Verse 14, sorry. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And then he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And if you scroll all the way down, he says this to them in verse 19. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And then he said, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And I love this story because the story starts off with that funny line where basically they get onto the boat and they forgot to bring food. These are the doofiest disciples in the world. I mean, my wife was telling me this story the other day, how she, she's climbed Long's Peak, Long's Peak a few times, and she said one day she was coming back down from Long's Peak, and this person was starting to go up Long's Peak, and, long, and he was wearing... Um, dress pants, uh, dress trousers, and, and a shirt, shirt and tie, and he had slip-on leather shoes. And she was like, he's not going to make it. <laughs> I don't think he's prepared for this. And I, I don't know if you've ever been camping and you suddenly realize that the person responsible for bringing, you know, the rolls of paper didn't. Uh, I've never done that, and I've never been part of that experience, but I'm just saying, I've heard. It's horrible. It's horrible. So people arrive and they go to things and they're just not prepared for this. The disciples are going out with the trip and the boat and they're like, I have one loaf. And, and Jesus is like, seriously? 
I mean, 5,000, I fed them, 4,000. You couldn't think to bring two loaves? Oh, my goodness, you guys. And then he goes and he just, he, he kind of tries to teach them a lesson in the experience as they're suffering through that entire moment inside there. But Jesus is constantly pushing them all the way through and saying, look, I need you to understand that I am constantly going to be taking care of you inside here. And his attempt to take care of us was phenomenal. It was transformative. We try to do that in this church as well. We try to take care of people here. We do so with our life groups. We do so with our socials, our Man, our fellowship lunches, our, our baby showers, our baby showers are really an excuse to get together. We do like the babies, we really do, but they don't really know what's going on. Some of them haven't even been born, and some of them have been, and we're just having fun. We're just getting together and loving and looking after each other and talking to each other, and it's phenomenal. It's a great experience. Our fellowship lunches, we connect. It's just good community. We try to take care of people. We also have the Good Samaritan Fund. Um, and this is a great fund. It's organized by a few people in this church, led by a few people in this church, small group, and we practically help people. We'll help them with their mortgage payment. We'll help them with, you know, with their rent. We'll help them like a temporary quick fix with their car or whatever it may be that they need, we can actually help them out with the Good Samaritan Fund. But that is not the fix. Those are all just Band-Aids. Those are just like medicine. When you go see your doctor, your doctor has two options. Uh, your doctor can say, Rise and heal yourself. No, they don't say that. They, they, can say, they can say to you, look, I can actually help you get better, or I can give you some medicine to make you feel like you're better. Right? And most times, I agree, we should just take the medicine. Right? Just take the medicine and then feel better for a while. But what the doctor really wants you to do, he, he or she, they want you to take you to the place where you're saying, let me be healed. Let me transform what's going on in my life. If possible, let me change this. Let me do the long-term stuff that needs to be done to be able to not have to come back and get a temporary fix inside there. So we are all about temporary fixes. But Jesus is saying, this bread that you ate, I need you to actually understand there's a much deeper bread that I want to give you. It's a bread that's actually going to transform who you are from the inside out. Verse 28 inside the text says this. When they hear the story, it's Jesus telling them this. It says there in verse 28, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And then Jesus answers this text, and he goes through and he tells them, let me just take you to this deep level here. Let me teach you how to grow food instead of just eating it. Let me teach you actually how to be healthy instead of just taking meds. Let me teach you actually how to actually be in community rather than just trying to exist by yourself. Let me teach you, verse 35, that I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And when you're in the desert and the heat is beating down on you, and you're looking at Jesus, and he's telling you, I'm talking about sustenance that will last forever. He captures the moment, and they are just overwhelmed with joy, and then they revert back straight away to say to him, I'm pretty sure he meant just food, right? I'm pretty sure he meant just food. In fact, in verse 41, it says this. So the Jews, which is a, a term that they used to describe the religious leaders of the time, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, it is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph. Get down to verse 52. It says, then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, you don't understand what I'm saying. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. As best as I can say this. In fact, he knew. 
He knew by saying that he was the blood that it was offensive. I mean, these Jewish people understood the First Testament principles about how blood carries all the disease, and so when you eat meat, it's kosher, it was clean, all the blood was removed. So the idea of eating any blood would be horrible. So Jesus is saying, of course, I'm not asking you to do this. I'm telling you this because it's a metaphor. But then you get down to verse 60, and I, I, did, I did jump ahead. I got kind of excited, and I jumped ahead. Verse 60 says this, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? They themselves were really complex about this and said, I don't know. Jesus, you're asking me to accept a lot of things. You're asking me to change a lot of views, and I just cannot accept this. In fact, Jesus knows this. He tells them, look, I'm trying to tell you it's a metaphor. Just understand this. I'm telling you I'm the bread of life. I'm the source of all this. But by the time you get down to verse 66, and this is a tragic verse. After this, many of his disciples turned back, and they no longer walked with him. And the Greek implies in that text there that it's not that they no longer walked with him for a day, or they no longer walked with him for a week or for a month. They left entirely forever. They stopped following Jesus. There was no room for them to accept Jesus, and there was no room for them to accept others. It was very, very difficult for them to actually embrace the change where Jesus was saying to them, I am your faith. I am the one who can restore you. I am the one who created you. You are only saved by coming through me. I am the one. And they could not accept that. When I was nine years old, um, I, I moved a lot as a child, and I went to this new school. And uh, I, I remember I was in the playground, and we were playing a, a game called Ring-a-Ring-a-Roses. You guys know this, this game? It's horrible if you ever leave the story about it. It's basically about the Black Plague. And, and just the, but the kids didn't know this. I didn't know this at nine years old. I was like, oh, we're going to go play Ring of Ring of Roses. It's fantastic. And, but if you read up the story about it, you'll never play Ring of Ring of Roses ever again. Not that you do now at like, the age that you are. But I remember I was nine years old, and I was, uh, we went into the, the playground, and, uh, and we were going to play Ring of Ring of Roses. And I, I put my hand forward to hold this girl's hand, because it was a whole group of circle of us. And she, she looked at me, and she grabbed my hand, and then she let go of it. And she said, I'm not holding your hand, you fatso. Now, I didn't know what a fatso was. So I was like, well, I don't know what that is. I'll hold somebody else's hand. All right, fair enough. So I go home that day, and, and I confided in my mom. I said, hey, somebody called me a, a fatso. And my mom looked at me horrified because she knew what it was. It was an abbreviation for fat sod, and sod is pig. She was calling you a fat pig. I mean, it was like, oh my goodness, really? Then I was really horrified. I was like, why did she call me a fat pig? I'm not, oh, maybe I was a little bit fat, but I wasn't that fat to be called a fat so, right? It was just horrible. 30 plus years later, I knew this, I knew this, this girl and I know her sister. 30 plus years later, I got to meet them again got to sit down by their bed well, for one of the sisters, got to pray a blessing on her life and for healing. They're phenomenal people. We were just kids at the time, and we didn't know how to relate to each other. We didn't know how to accept people who look different, act different, or smell different, or think different to us. But now, we're best friends. We're good friends. 
We, we actually can call and pray for each other. That's how good it is. That's what acceptance of Jesus does in your life. And both of them are phenomenal leaders in the church, good people who actually care for others as well. I've always, for some reason, been drawn to protecting others. I don't know if that's like some kind of thing of being, you know, the oldest child for a while there or, you know, having a little sibling brother that I could beat up and, and protect at the same time. I don't know what that was, but I always felt drawn that way. Even when I was at school, uh, I felt that the kids who would be picked on would all come to me for protection. Um, there was a friend of mine called Kevin, and his name is Kevin Morris, and I, I tried to look him up yesterday because I haven't spoken to him since I was 13, 14, when I left that school. Um, but I'd love to be able to connect with Kevin Morris. We called him Moggy, <laughs> and, uh, and Moggy was like super skinny. I mean, like he could fall in a drain. If he, if he ran by. Moggy had speed like lightning. He was like the road runner, just like, like 100 miles an hour. And then he could just drop on the floor, or like lie down flat and scrunch up like a, like a bat had fell down and just landed on the floor. It was just incredible. But Moggy was very cheeky, very cheeky, very funny. Uh, and I liked Moggy a lot. And he was a good, good friend of mine. And Moggy would tease people who were usually the bullies in the school. So then these big bullies would like chase around to try and find Moggy, and Moggy would run like a hundred miles an hour and then just drop behind me, right? And he'd fall, and he'd like to be just around my feet, like hiding, like, uh, like what's that guy from Lord of the Rings? You know what I'm talking about? Gone, except for he had hair. It was just horrible. It was just like that. And then these kids would come and like, get aside, Jay. You know, we want, to, we want to beat up Moggy. We want to teach him a lesson. And I would defend him. And I always felt good about defending Moggy, right? I always felt like this is what, what I was just wired for. It was good. And I would defend Moggy all the time as best as I could. And I felt that having friends that I could actually help was always very good. I didn't realize how much I needed friends myself. I enjoyed being able to help other people. When I was 16 years old, a few years later, uh, my father had, uh, a few years before that, had decided to go back to school and retrain. And I don't know if you're one of those parents that's gone back to school in your 40s or 50s, and I know we have some people here, and so this, my father, he went back, he wanted to go study for ministry, and uh, so he retrained his entire life, went to school, went to Newbold College to study to become a pastor. And we were growing up there. Now, my father is a very conservative Seventh-day Adventist, and by conservative, I mean that here is conservative, and then there's my father about a mile over there, right? So he understood, he understood, you know, things very straightforward for him, understood it well. Fifth-generation Adventist, that was where my father stood on a lot of things. Plus also, and I've been a teacher, and I've taught in seminary, and, uh, and I know what it's like to have a class where you have an 18-year-old, a freshman, and you have like a 50 or 60-year-old as a freshman as well. It is weird, all right, as a teacher. But at the time, I didn't understand that. My father went in, and my father just stood very strong on some grounds. He felt that some of the teachers at Newbold College were not doing a great job when they were teaching theology, and, and he felt that he should actually share that and use with them. And that became very difficult became very difficult. Uh, so difficult that when he finished his master's, they requested that he leave campus um, and be done. And by be done, they said, if you're not done by this date, we will evict you. Now, this is a small community, all right? This is me, 16 years old, with all of my friends, and I'm going to church, and suddenly the word is out that we're going to get evicted on July, whatever the date was. So... At that point, what happened for my church experience, what happened to my experience with all my friends is that they all left. We'd go to church, sit down, and we'd sit by ourselves. Nobody wanted to talk to us. 
nobody, my friends didn't want to hang out with me. They didn't want to talk to me. And I suddenly realized that acceptance was not just me always accepting those who needed, that I needed acceptance as well, that I needed to be embraced as well. And my father, he said to me, look, people are people. You love God. You serve in this church. You just be faithful. God will take care of you. Don't worry about it. So he kept on paying his tithes and his offerings and volunteering to help and do whatever he did. And he did all, all, all that he could. Two years later, I enrolled at that same school now to study for theology. And I kid you not, some of the professors, I'm not saying Peter Van Bevelen, I'm just saying, some of the professors were petrified. I mean, they called me in. Peter called me in one day. And I've been there at school like two weeks. And they're like, Brother D'Olivera, you know. You, you know, you, you don't have to be like your father. I was like, well, I like my dad. <laughs> no, no, you know what I mean. I said, no, I, I don't really know what you mean. Well, I'm just saying, enjoy college. You don't have to be like your dad. <laughs> I was like, I, what have I done? I've done two weeks of classes. It's, it's the book of Revelation. It wasn't that hard. I memorized it. Let's go for it. Let's, and I was like, no. It just, and I, I left that room, and I went and spoke to my dad that night and said to him what Peter had said to me, and my dad said these really interesting words. He said, um, what did God call you to do? And I said, well, I believe God's called me to become a pastor. Uh, he's called me to be a missionary, to be a leader at some point in the church, to bring people into some kind of relationship with Jesus. And I said it in different words, but that's what I was trying to articulate to him. And he said, well, God called me, this is what my dad said, God called me to come to Newball College and actually to speak truth to some of the things that they were saying and to confront them about some of the issues that they were sharing. But God didn't call you to that, did he? He said, no. He said, then don't say anything. Go study. Go learn. Go become what God has called you to be. And with that, what my dad did is that he released the pressure off me instantly. It was just like, I felt this weight off my shoulders. He just like, he just said, hey, be, (laughs) just be who God has called you to be. Don't worry about having to be my son or having to fight my battles. Just do what God has called you to do. And in his acceptance, I felt accepted again. So I went through that entire experience there, went through the college, learned a lot of stuff, had a, met a whole bunch of great leaders, had a whole gr- bunch of great leaders also come and apologize to me later on in my life, in my 20s, and say, what we did to your father wasn't really cool. We're sorry for that. And I said, hey, that's good. In fact, I got to meet some of these guys 30 years on. Uh, just in the last couple of years, I met a few of them who we got to be able to pray together, got to be able to be community together. And it's difficult to be able to exist sometimes when you realize that the harm that has taken place wasn't intentional, wasn't meant to be that way, but it affects us because we all desperately want acceptance. Well, Jesus understood this really well. And in this text inside here, when he tells them about this, he says, look, I need you to understand that I am going to teach you to become defenders of others. I'm going to teach you to become great leaders that will show acceptance to those who don't want to be accepted and don't know how to be accepted. 
And these disciples, they failed miserably. They were horrible. They had all failed their exams. The reason why that they were working as carpenters and all sorts of other careers that they had is because they had failed the rabbinic school and were not allowed to become disciples. So Jesus takes these ragamuffins and he says to them, let me turn you into leaders. Let me turn you into what God can actually do inside you. And he goes through and Jesus starts to hang out with everybody. He hangs out with, in the Bible it says, tax collectors and sinners, implying that tax collectors have their own class, all on their own, next to the sinners. I'm just, just saying, I didn't mean that about Sean, just, just sharing what the Bible says. And so It's just tax collectors, because the tax collectors in those days had betrayed their people. So the Jews would look at them and say, you sinners and the tax collectors, oh, even worse than a sinner, because they were continually betraying their people, serving Rome in the way that they did this. He says, you sinners, you, he said, you children that have been despised on, I will embrace you. I will take your bread and I will multiply the gifts you give me. The men and the women, I will bring them together and I will let them become my disciples and these will actually transform the world. He says, all races, Gentiles, Jews, Greeks, everybody, all together, you can do it because Jesus is the one who's calling you to this. But we have issues, my friends. All of us have issues. All of us have things that are complexly hidden inside us and we need the transformative power of God. Some of us are liars, some of us are thieves, some of us slander and gossip and hurt each other. Some of us are Republicans, some of us are Democrats, some of us are Green Party and Tea Party. Some of us actually are straight, some of us are gay or lesbian or transgender or bisexual. Some of us are married, some of us are divorced, some of us are single, some of us are just having affairs after affairs. We all have issues. We can pretend, and I'll tell you this at Boulder Church, you, can, you are not in, this is not that church. It's not that church. You want a church where you can go to church and you can pretend that everything's fine? I can give you a long list. There's tons of them. At this church here, you are who you are. We embrace you for who you are because God has embraced us. And with that grace, we can be transformed. That's what we are. That's the kind of people we need to be. Not people who have just set up our own criteria of what we believe standards to be and then impose on somebody else and says, I need you to now jump into my hoop and actually agree with my hoop and live in that hoop. God says, I'm gonna take you wherever you are and I'm gonna bring you on that journey to where you need to be. Because this is the way it works. Jesus says, I'm over here and you're over there. And by the way, you can't walk to me. You have to let me come over there, pick you up and carry you. And if you let me carry you, I can bring you to over here. But you have to admit that you need me. And I'm trying to nudge you all the time to say that you need Jesus. And with him, you can be different. Our final question this morning is a question number six. I skipped a whole bunch. It's all good. You can join us in a Bible study class and discuss this at home. But what does acceptance by God mean? What does acceptance by God mean? It means that we eat bread and we drink the water. And when we do that, we grow. We grow. You have to grow. God's calling you to grow. And that means you change. It's not that I tell you to change, it's that God's power inside you changes you, and you grow, and you change the things that are the struggles and the messes inside you. Jesus wants you to know that it's never too late, it's never too hard, and you're never too far away. You can always grow with him. He will be the sustainer, the bread of your life, all the time, no matter what you think about this. On Tuesday, at Fresh Word, we're meeting here for our life group and Bible study. 
And this is at noon, so primarily people who are retired or semi-retired or have the flexibility in their workspace. And in that conversation on Tuesday, um, we talked about life, talked about the loss of life. When you go home and you suddenly realize that the person who you love is no longer there and your bed is empty and you're there by yourself. And the loneliness that comes with that. And then somebody said the appreciation that comes with that. When you suddenly realize the value of what you lost, that you look at people differently and you live a life of more grace. And the grace means you're actually more accepting of people. And I was like, wow, that's, that's maturity. That means that Jesus is holding you right now, and he's saying to you, hey, you look at everybody, they're all welcome. Every time you feel that you're not welcome, every time you feel that you're not accepted, it's because Satan is telling you that. And he's trying to pull you away from this community, away from God. And I'm telling you this, that Paul understood this well. So the final text I have for you is on page 104, 104.3, it's Romans chapter 5. Paul understood this well, and I think that the reason why Jesus chose Paul is because he knew the journey that he had been. And this is what he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what God has called us to, an incredible miracle and an incredible reality that while all of us have sinned, he died for us and he's called us for that. And we're all accepted in his kingdom. And because of that, let's let God do the transformation and let's be the people that actually accept each other. Whether we disagree or agree, let us learn to actually live love with each other. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father. A lot of tension in our lives, a lot of tension personal, a lot of tension corporate and a lot of tension wider, a lot of struggles all the time where we're desperately looking for acceptance from each other and acceptance for others as well. God, may you give us the courage, may you give us the ability to hang on to you and you give us that kind of love, the love that actually is accepting, the love that is committed to making a transformation in our lives. We ask this in your son's name, amen.